Uh, I don't like to do a lot of sports references in, in my sermons because I know that there's a lot of people out there who have absolutely no interest in sports. And if they hear you talk about sports, there's a switch that goes in their head that just turns off. But I want you just to bear with me just for like just for a couple minutes, okay? I promise this isn't just going to all be about sports. Uh, years and years ago... I'm from San Antonio. Some of you may know that, some of you may not, but I'm from San Antonio, and San Antonio has a NBA basketball team, the Spurs. And the Spurs, over the last 22 years, have done pretty well. Um, but before that, the Spurs were not really well known as a competitive team. Uh, in 1973, the Spurs organization became what they are today, the Spurs, the NBA team, the Spurs. And over a span of 22, 23 years from 73 to 96, the Spurs went through 11 different coaches. And they made it to the NBA Finals a total of, let's see, carry the zero times. Never. They never made it to the NBA Finals. And then in 1996, a guy by the name of Greg Popovich became the head coach of the Spurs. He had previously been engaged in uh, operations behind the scenes, but he became the head coach. He was on the floor. He was coaching the players. And since 1996, the Spurs have had exactly one coach in all those years, Greg Popovich. And they made it to the NBA Finals a total of six times, and they've won five of those. And the one that they lost was heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. But anyway, the, the reason why I bring that up, and the reason why I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on sports or the Spurs, is just to say that there was a quote that I remember hearing, as one of the players, when Popovich became the coach, they were interviewing one of the players. This is back in 96. And they interviewed one of the players, and they said, how do you feel about Popovich being the coach? And he said, I love it. I love it because I feel like we've been turned loose. We've been turned loose. And see, ministry empowerment is a lot like that. Is that as players, up until that point, they never really felt like they were empowered. They never really felt like they were able to go out. Because if you're going to be in the NBA, right, you don't just wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to go and try out for an NBA team, right? You don't just wake up and do that. I mean, LeBron James didn't do that. Kobe Bryant didn't do that. Michael Jordan didn't do that. They played in the neighborhood. They played in high school. They played in, some of them played in college. Some of the real greats just went straight from high school to the NBA. See, Amber's leaving. She doesn't want to hear any more about sports. I'm sorry, Amber. I'm just kidding. So, but you don't just wake up one day. There's a lot of preparation that goes into it. And so the same thing goes with ministry empowerment, is that we don't just wake up one day and we're empowered to do ministry. There's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. I was doing some research for our sermon this week, and I was going through one of the books that I had in seminary. It's by a couple of guys named Stetzer and Dodson, and it's called Comeback Churches. And it's talking about revitalization and renewal that happened within 300 churches across America. 300 churches that were either on the verge of being a dead church, or they were dead, and something happened to bring these churches back and they became revitalized. 
And when they narrowed these things down, they, they talked to the pastors, they sent them questionnaires, they asked them for feedback. They said, what are some of the things that you can identify? What are some of the things that you think really revitalized your, tur your church? And the number one thing was leadership. The number two thing was vibrant faith. And the number three thing was is a fancy thing called mobilized laity. That means ministry empowerment. It means people within the pews of the church didn't look up at the pastor or the staff of the church and say, those are the guys that do everything and we just show up on Sunday. Mobilized lady means that every person in the church felt like they had ownership in the business, the ministry of the church. Mobilized lady. But as I was reading through that and I saw that second one, I mean, everyone can kind of understand what strong leadership or good leadership is. It's kind of like Greg Popovich. It's, you know, ministry empowerment. But vibrant faith, what is vibrant faith? When you think about that, is that like a subjective thing? I mean, somebody say, might say, well, vibrant faith means that I've, you know, it looks like this in my life. And you talk to somebody else and they say, well, vibrant faith is this. Well, I think there's a passage of scripture that really sums it up quite well. And that's Luke 9.23. You don't have to take my word for it if you want to flip there in your Bibles. Luke 9.23. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, that there's three things they need to do. If anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, there's three things that need to happen. The first one is, is Jesus says, you need to deny yourself. You need to deny yourself. The second one is, he says, you need to pick up your cross. There are some manuscripts that say daily, and there are some that don't. But all of them say we need to pick up our cross. So there's no debate there. And the third one is, Jesus says, follow. Follow me. What does vibrant faith look like? Well, if you're going to be empowered into ministry, if you're going to do ministry, if you're going to be someone who's involved in ministry, you're going to be empowered, you're going to be mobilized laity, you're going to be mobilized out of the pews and into ministry, well, what does that look like? What is vibrant faith? Well, those three things. Deny self, pick up your cross, and follow after me. Can you guys put the quote up there for me? There's a quote that I've put up here a couple of times. And I've only done a portion of it. And this is the, this is the full quote. So I'm going to read this for you. Y'all can see it up on the screen there. This is from a guy named Robert Coleman. And Robert Coleman said, Something is missing in the life of the church today. Today's institution has a polite form of religion, but it seems to lack power. The power to radically change the wayward course of society. And that's where I've left it. Coleman goes on to say, this is not to say nothing is happening. See, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in churches today, right? There's a lot of stuff. There are some churches here in Dallas that have multi-million dollar building projects that have gone on recently. They've got a lot of big ministries. They've got a lot of things that are happening. Coleman goes on to say, this is not to say nothing's happening because stuff is happening, right? There's stuff happening in churches. And he goes on and he says, in fact, all kinds of things are going on. And if, you may want to, in your mind, kind of highlight, circle, if, and if 
success is measured by big meetings, big buildings, and big budgets, then, if, then, the church appears to be doing quite well. If. If that's the standard that you want to use. But if the standard you want to use is Luke 9.23, deny self, pick up your cross, and follow me. See, that's what Jesus said. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my disciple, then that's what needs to happen, and that's what vibrant faith looks like. So if you haven't already turned there in your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to go through verses 16 through 20. Verse 16 says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee. You could just gloss right over that, right? You could just say the eleven disciples traveled to Galilee. So what? Who cares they went to Galilee? They might have gone to, you know, Starbucks. They might have gone to Egypt. They might have gone wherever. Why Galilee? What's the big deal? Why emphasize that point, Pastor? Well, I want you to turn back a couple of chapters to chapter 26. Chapter 26, and in verse 32, we're still in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 26, verse 32, this is right after uh, Peter's denial is predicted. Jesus says, but after I have been resurrected, this is before he's been crucified and resurrected, but after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to where? To Galilee! Jesus said that there's a place that he was going to go after he was resurrected, right? And that place wasn't a random place. It was Galilee. And then you can fast forward to chapter 28 and look at verse number 7. This is right before we get to the Great Commission. This is on the resurrection morning. Jesus is talking to the women that are there at the tomb says, then go quickly and tell his disciples. I'm sorry, this is the angel talking. says, then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has been risen from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to where? To Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. That's the angel speaking. And then fast forward again to verse 10. This is now Jesus speaking. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee. Go and leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. One of the core values that we spoke about not too long ago was expectancy, right? We talked about this idea of expectancy, and the difference between expectancy and entitlement is entitlement is that you really don't have any reason to expect something. Is that you just feel like that, that young girl who went to SMU and she wanted her dad to buy her an airplane. Well, there's another girl in the sorority that has one. Dad, you should buy me an airplane because somebody else has one and I don't want to be second place. I've always been the richest kid on the block. And Dad, if you're a real man, by the way, Dad, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, kind of get dad right in the, you know, the soft spot there. Is that if you're a real man, you, you wouldn't let somebody else's dad kind of show me up. You go out and you'd buy me that brand new jet airplane. And like I said, that was the first place I ever saw my ex-brother-in-law draw the line. Wow, at a jet airplane. Good place to draw the line. So, 
Why Galilee? Well, because that's where Jesus said he was going to go. And expectation is set by God. Therefore, we have expectancy. That's one of our core values. And expectancy looks like obedience. Jesus said, go and meet me in Galilee and here these people are. So what's the big deal? The big deal is, is that they would have never heard the Great Commission had they never gone. Jesus said, meet me in Galilee, right? And like I said, you could just gloss that or you can go, big deal, so what? It's important. If Jesus says, go and do something, go and meet me somewhere, and you don't do it, then nothing else can happen after that. Obedience has to happen first. Obedience has to happen first. Let's look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some, my translation is a HCSB, it says, some doubted. Well, that word for doubt is distadzo in Greek. It means hesitation. It means you're at a crossroads. Have you ever been at a crossroads in your life? And you're sitting there and you're like, well, ah, maybe... That's what it means to be at a crossroads, is that you're unsure. It wouldn't be a crossroads if you just knew, I'm just going to go that way. So Jesus appears to the eleven. Remember, Judas is dead. Jesus appears to them, and some of them immediately worshipped. It doesn't say names, but it says some doubted, some hesitated, some distadzo. Some were at a crossroads. They didn't have certainty. They were like, I don't know. You know, I, I heard what the angels said. I heard what the women said. I heard, I heard all of that stuff, but I don't really know. I mean, I've heard everything that Jesus taught. We were with him for three years. There are things that he said that now I'm, I'm really starting to realize that they're all coming to fulfillment. He said that he had to go to Jerusalem, that he had to die. I remember Peter getting up in front of him and saying, No, Jesus, stop talking that noise. You don't, you don't go to a cross, not my Savior. You're, you're, the, you're the stud. You're the Messiah. You're the one who's supposed to rule. You're supposed to overthrow these Romans, right? And Jesus said, get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. Distadzo, they were at a crossroads. So the first prerequisite is expectancy, and the second prerequisite is certainty. How are you going to have or experience vibrant faith If there's no expectancy, how are you going to have or experience vibrant faith if you don't have certainty? Isn't that really kind of at the core, the root of why we're not fully engaged as Christians? Isn't it? It's because we really lack a certain level of certainty. We really lack a certain level of conviction. Because if you've been absolutely convinced of something, if your doctor said, you've got six months to live because of some disease, and you're absolutely convinced of that, when you go home, do you just go, I'm just going to keep on doing things the way that I did them before the diagnosis? You're absolutely convinced. No, you act differently, right? You may quit your job. You may have a bucket list. There's places you want to go. Maybe you have a a relationship with a parent or a a child or a sibling or a long-lost friend that's been broken. And you say, you know what? I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to make the investment. I'm going to make the effort to reconcile. Things look different because you're certain. 
So if Jesus comes to us and he says, if you want to be my disciple, that there's three things that you need to do. You need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross and you need to follow. Well, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we doing that? I think it's because we lack a certain level of certainty. We're like some of those disciples who were standing there, right? Some of them immediately fell down and worshipped, and some of them kind of stood there, and it says they doubted. I don't really know. And it doesn't say it's a sin. It doesn't say that Jesus struck them down with lightning bolts and turned them into piles of ash and said, you should have known that I was God. He doesn't say that. See, all of the rest of what follows after this, I really believe is Jesus speaking to those who were uncertain. See, the ones who worshipped, they didn't need anything else. They already knew, right? Because if you already know, you're gone. That's Jesus. I'm just waiting for him to tell me, go. I'm gone. But see, there were some that were just kind of standing back there, and they were like, Lord, what do I do now? You are dead. But now I see that you're risen. And then Jesus spoke to them. And it radically transformed their lives, right? Has it radically transformed yours to the point of being empowered in ministry? See, because when we talk about ministry empowerment, I hope y'all aren't waiting for me. I hope y'all aren't waiting for your pastor to say, you know, I bless you, off into, off into ministry. Because the green light doesn't come from me. There's a certain level of authority, yes, that within the context of Poetry Baptist Church, there are things that need to line up with our mission statement, that need to line up with our values. If you're going to go out and you're going to represent Poetry Baptist Church, I would hope that there are some things that you would do that you'd say, yeah, I, under, I fall under the authority of Pastor Kevin. I fall under the authority of our leadership. I align with the values and the, and the mission and the, the statements and the beliefs of Poetry Baptist Church because remember we said our beliefs manifest as behaviors. So the first one, the first prerequisite was expectancy and the second one is certainty. Deny, pick up, and follow. And then we go into verse 18. And this is where, I mean, it's already good because it's God's word, right? But here's where it gets really good. Here's where it gets really good. And here's where maybe I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Because I'm not going to go with just the standard reading of the text. Mine, I said, is the HCSB, the Holloman Christian Standard Bible. And it says, go, therefore, and make disciples. And if you look in my Bible, some of you might think I'm a heretic, but I've got some X's crossed through a couple of the words there. Jesus, in fact, doesn't say go. He doesn't. See, the word there is one, it's, it's the root, is pora euthentes. Or you am I. It's a verb that means to have been transported. And it's a passive verb, which doesn't say, I'm going, like I'm the one doing it. It means someone else, if it's a passive verb, there's someone else who's actually doing it. You're kind of being transported. You're being transported. So Jesus isn't saying go. He's saying, therefore, having been transported... Having been, having been transformed or transported. And then it goes on, and the imperative verb there is disciple. It doesn't say make disciples. See, in our, in our first world 
North American Industrial Society. We're, we're good about making things, right? And some people are already saying, I don't know. The pastor's saying, you know, everything I've ever heard, make disciples. My Bible says make, but it's an imperative verb. It just says disciple. And what I want you guys to understand, you don't have to walk away from this saying that that's the authoritative word on it. God's word is the authoritative word. I'm the one preaching on it, okay? And you get to wrestle with it. See, that's what I get to do, is I get to preach it and I get to leave it with y'all, and then you get to go home and wrestle with the Holy Spirit. Go, Holy Spirit, is, is, that, is that really what this says? It says, disciple, that's the imperative verb. Years ago, as I shared with y'all before, is that I did, I did a couple, three years of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I loved it. I really loved it. Not only for the fitness side of it, but learning something new is getting into a, an exercise, an art form, where it wasn't about how strong you were. You could have guys that would come in that would just be just jacked. I mean, they'd just, you know, 22-inch arms. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you'd have these guys that look like big old bodybuilders. And they'd come in and they'd think, man, there's nobody in here that can spar with me. And you get this little guy who's a brown belt who'd been studying Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under Master Machado, world champion, for years. And Master Machado oftentimes would say to the guys behind the scenes, he'd say, okay, I want you to baptize him. I want you to baptize this guy. Because you could tell when they would come in, they'd have that big chip on their shoulder, like, I'm just going to come in, I'm going to wail on somebody, and then I'm going to walk out. And I'm going to feel good about myself because I just throttled someone. And you get this little dude who probably weighed 125 pounds. And he'd spar with this guy who was 225, 250. And they'd get down on the ground and they'd start sparring him within five minutes. Usually less than that. He'd have the guy in some kind of a submission hold. And the guy would be tapping out or screaming and squealing. And then it would be like, wow, that's awesome. Sometimes they'd say that. Sometimes they didn't think it was awesome. But my point to all of that is, is that the idea of discipleship, if you look at that picture of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is, is that when you go in, we didn't go in for gym wins. You didn't go in for gym wins. You didn't go in to say, I'm going to be the toughest guy in the gym today. See, there were some guys like that, but the vast majority of them got weeded out. You went in to train. You went in to be discipled, to be baptized in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You did that because whether you were a white belt or whether you were a black belt, you always have something to learn. Always. Remember we said that one of the marks of being a Christian is that you have a teachable spirit? The guys who were the best at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the guys that were the best, whether they were sparring with somebody that was beneath them or somebody that was equal to them or somebody that was above them, they always had something to learn. They always wanted to teach and they always wanted to learn. That's what the picture of discipleship is, guys. That's what discipleship is. When Jesus says right here, and he says, Therefore, having been transported, disciple. He's saying, engage in that activity that is Christianity. Disciple. Engage. Teach someone something. Learn something. When I sit down with Bud, I sit down with Tom, I sit down with Cheryl or Amber or my wife Christine, more often than not, she teaches me stuff all the time. And see, if you're the person who's sitting there and you're thinking like, I don't really have anything to learn, those are the most annoying and obnoxious Christians around. 
They are. They're the people who on Facebook, they've, they never have a positive thing to say, right? They're the person that it's like, oh, I heard this guy's sermon and his, his theology is off on points A, B, C, and D. Dude, what's your ministry? See, because when I go into Scripture, I do not see the spiritual gift of criticism. I don't see it. I don't see it. You could be an encourager. We talked about that this morning. You might be someone who's an encourager. It's so easy to be a critic. That's the easiest thing in the world. What's your ministry? Discipleship. Disciple. Jesus spoke and he said, let's go back. 18. Then Jesus came near, said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, having been transported, disciple all nations. And then Jesus goes on to say, Baptizing them. Well, let's back up just a little bit. So when Jesus says, Having been transported, what have we been transported from? We've been transported from death to life. What else? We've been transported from darkness to life. See, there's someone in here who's certain. They've been transported, right? If you're not certain of it, then you sit there and you go, I don't, I don't really know. I haven't been transported to anything. What else? What have we been transported from? Slavery to freedom from guilt and shame to victory, right? We've been transported. We've been transported from being selfish to being selfless. We've been transported from being entitled to being expectant. We've been transported from being uncertain. See, when we look out at a lost and dying world, what's the one thing that defines all of them? Uncertainty. They're without hope. There is absolutely no certainty. When you talk to people about what it is that they believe or why they believe it, I don't know, because they have no certainty. Proverbs 27, 17. Anybody familiar with that one? Proverbs 27, 17. It has something to do with iron and iron. Yes, iron sharpens iron, so we, it's not, so oftentimes I hear that and it's used for men's ministry. It's not just about men, it's about Christians, it's about believers. It's like that Brazilian jiu-jitsu picture. Is it, see, when you show up to class, when you show up to be baptized into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, iron sharpens iron. Is that how we show up? Is that what you expected when you came today was to be sharpened? And to sharpen someone else? When you sit down at a table at your Sunday school class, are you expecting to sharpen someone else? When someone rubs their iron up alongside you, what happens? Are they sharpened? Or like the critic, do they get dulled by an encounter with you? Ugh. I just, I don't really want to talk to that person. Because all I ever get is negativity. All I ever get is criticism. All I ever get is doubt. And Jesus goes on to say, Disciple who? Disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. See, discipleship looks like baptizing into the community and the culture of God. And then Jesus goes on to refine that statement even a little bit more in verse 20. He says, Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. 
teaching them to observe everything I commanded. I have a conversation with a guy that's gone on over maybe two or three weeks. This has gone on through Messenger on Facebook. And several weeks back, he reached out to me. It's not someone from our congregation. It's from a church that I previously attended. And he sent me a, a question several weeks back, and he said, why is it that the church doesn't emphasize, teach, require us to follow the law? And my first, my first initial response to that was that my heart sank. See, because the law was incapable of doing anything. The, the law didn't transfer anybody from death to life, did it? Did, did the law take anyone from uncertainty to certainty? Did the law take anyone from shame and guilt into victory in Christ? No. And so as we were dialoguing back and forth, one of the things that he said, he said that there's a specific verse where Jesus said that not one stroke of the law will pass away until you know, the new heaven the new earth come. And then I said, yeah, but Paul also said that in many places that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And he said, well, who am I going to believe, Paul or Jesus? And my heart sank even further. And I said, why is it that you don't trust what it is that Paul had to say? I said, because if you go into the Gospels, do you realize that Jesus didn't write those? Jesus didn't write the Gospels. There's not a Gospel according to Jesus, right? I mean, they are, because what is... What does Timothy say? All scripture is theos penustos, God breathed, right? All scripture is God breathed. And so I referred him to Galatians 5.14. And Galatians 5.14 says that the entire law is summed up in this. Anybody know what that is? What's that? Love your neighbor. The entire law is summed up in this. And I said to him, I said, okay, so if you're wanting to follow the law, if you're wanting to adhere to the law, I said, where do you draw the line? Does that mean circumcision? Does that mean the food laws? Does that mean the clothing laws? I said, because if you don't, if you don't follow the, you know, if you don't follow all of those things, where do you get, where do you get to decide? Where do you draw the line? And under what authority? See, because Acts... Remember we talked about this, is that the sheet came down, and Peter had that vision of all the different random animals. Well, if you're going to jettison Paul's writings, and you're going to jettison the book of Acts, you've got to stick to all that stuff. So he didn't respond after I asked him about Galatians 5.14. The entire law is fulfilled in that. See, because Jesus said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What does any of this have to do with ministry empowerment? Everything. See, because Jesus stood there, Jesus said, go and meet me in Galilee, and they were there. They met him. And then Jesus went on to say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, having been transported, disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything. I'm kind of one of those like let's fast forward to the to the good stuff. Like give me give me the give me the nugget that I can hold on to, right? Is because I'm not smart enough to remember 600, 700, 800 laws. 
I'm going to be one of those people that if, if I lived in Old Testament times and I was one of those people that had to keep up with all those things, I would have been, I'd have been making sacrifices at the temple like five or six times a day. Oh, I did it. Oh my gosh. There's another one. I got to, you know, I got to bring this kind of offering. I got to bring that. I made another mistake. I didn't do this. I forgot about that. Now I got to do this. Now I got to, you know, all the time. But see, Jesus says in Galatians 5.14 that it's about loving your neighbor, right? And then Jesus in verse 20, what does he say? Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. And behold, look. See that Greek word there, idon? It's, it's a future. He's, he's casting a vision. Jesus isn't saying, look, look at me, look right now. He's saying, look, like perceive in your heart and in your mind. I want you to see something. I want you to see a reality that transcends what you're experiencing today. I want you to understand something. Look, Jesus says, I am, ego, and me. Anybody ever heard that I am before? I am. Going all the way back to Exodus. When Moses said, okay, Lord, you want me to go to Pharaoh? You want me to go to my people? You want me to tell them that you sent me? Well, who do I say sent me? And God said, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And that's the name by which I'll be known forever. All generations. For eternity. I am. And Jesus starts that final part out with, and he says, perceive, behold, look, I am with you. Emmanuel. Two of the greatest names. I am Emmanuel. I am with you. Emmanuel. Always. Says to the very end of the age or unto completion. Ministry empowerment. See, we have an expectation that's been set by God. We have some prerequisites. There's expectancy, there's certainty, and there's authority. See, if we're going to be empowered as a church, if you're going to be empowered as a Christian, Luke 9.23, what does vibrant faith look like? What does it look like? It looks like deny self, pick up your cross, and follow me. And as we're following Jesus, as we're following him, that's ministry empowerment. You have been empowered by God Almighty. Do y'all understand that? You have been empowered by God Almighty to engage in ministry. You've been empowered to do ministry, and that's why it's one of our core values. See, because beliefs manifest as behaviors, right? That's true. What you believe manifests itself as your behavior. As a church, let's be empowered. Let's live that out. Father God, we thank you so much. We thank you for your son, the eternal Logos, the eternal word. We thank you for this time today and uh, just in worship where your word was preached through me. And I pray that it's, that seed has been planted in the hearts of those who have come today and who have listened, diligently leaned into your word and prayed as we were going through this time of scripture, asking your spirit to guide us, to lead us, to teach us, 
to transform us, to empower us as ministers of the gospel, to not be a church of spectators, but to be a church that's empowered to do your, your mission, your will, to bring you glory by discipling all people to the ends of the earth. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.